I've got the pleasure of introducing Professor Mike Neary this morning, who's going to be delivering our, our keynote. So, so as tradition stands, just a, a bit of information and a, and a bigger background uh, as well. Um, Mike is currently the Dean of Teaching and Learning at the University of Lincoln, and is recently also now the director of the Graduate School. Prior to working at the University of Lincoln, he was working at the University of Warwick, where he taught political sociology. And before then, Mike had a completely different career working in London and working in the youth and community education. His current research interests really rely around academic labor and the student experience. And some recent publications that are interesting to note include Teaching Politically, um, Policy, Pedagogy, and the New European University. And the second one, A New Pedagogy of, so of Space and Time, which is also being recently published as well. Mike in 2007 was awarded a National Teaching Fellowship, which those of you who are not from the UK is a fantastic award. It's a national award from the Higher Education Academy, and it really is um, given to people who demonstrate excellence in teaching and learning. Mike's talk today is entitled Student as Producer, Radicalizing Curriculum Development, Institutional Change in Higher Education. So if you could join me today in just welcoming Professor Mike Neary uh, to deliver our keynote this morning. Thank you. Yes, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you very much to the SRHE for inviting me to come and talk to this newer researchers conference. It is a real pleasure and a privilege to be here to share with you my ideas and my work. I'm looking forward to being here for the whole of today and talking to you, and I think I'm, I'm be judging some of the posters, so I'm very much looking forward to that. My talk today is uh, entitled Student as Producer, Radicalizing Curriculum Development and Institutional Change in Higher Education. Although I'm going to be talking to you about my work inside and outside an English university, I am going to put my work also into a global context and tell you a little bit about some new research I'm involved with um, in Chile, with the student movement uh, in Chile. And um, actually, I'm going to be using Twitter. I hope to be able to show you how I've been using Twitter as what I think is a fairly powerful research tool. And the research is called Looking for Allende, Looking for Allende. It's about my search for the ex-president, Marxist president, Salvador Allende, uh, who was uh, the president from 1970 to 73 before the Pinochet coup. Um, and I'm involved with colleagues and students in Chile and others uh, and their campaign uh, for free public education, as well as free housing, welfare, and health. Okay, I'm going to talk for about 45 minutes, allowing Plenty of time, I hope, for questions. I think we've got an hour and a quarter altogether. Okay, take a deep breath. And a drink of water. Okay, my name is Mike Neary. I am the Dean of Teaching and Learning at the University of Lincoln. The University of Lincoln is a fairly new university. It's about 10 years old. It has 15,000 students, approximately. It's a very progressive and radical project that those of us who work there talk of it as being a um, a project, and you will know that's had a very rapid rise of the league tables, uh, um, and has three colleges of arts and social science and science. I'm the director of the um, 
of the graduate school, and we have about 300 postgraduate research students, so it's, it's not small. So in that capacity, as the director of the graduate school, I do a lot of work with uh, early career researchers and PhD students across all subject areas. I am a political sociologist, and I did teach sociology at Warwick for 15 years. Um, and before that, I was in community education in South London. And my research is academic labor and student life, and I'm very interested in the future of higher education, with specific reference to conceptualize and bringing to life radical, revolutionary, reformist alternatives to higher education. That is to say, to bringing radical ideas to life. Man, if I can get this to work. Uh, where are we? Yeah, here we are. For those of you who are interested, this is a, uh, a recent interview I did. Oh, sorry, it's, it's, um, it's not quite the right page. Should be here somewhere. Uh, this is a recent interview I did with um, a class war university. Here I am. They slightly adapted the picture. But for those of you who want to find out about more about me, and there's a list of my articles on the end of this um, this piece. Um, there you are. So I'm interested in bringing radical ideas uh, to life, and I'll be talking about that work this morning. I'll be talking about student producer. I'll also be talking about the project we are doing in Lincoln that I'm involved in that is featured in this interview, which is the creation of a free cooperative in higher education in the city of Lincoln. A free cooperative um, in the city of Lincoln. So I want to tell you about that. Um, and then I'm also, as I said, going to tell you about um, my work in Chile. I'll just put that in the center of the frame just to make it, there you go, give it a full whack. Okay, now um, this is a global conference, so I want to put my work into a global context and think about universities in that way. Universities play a key role in the development of economic and social policy. They're not just the object or victims of policy, but they're instruments of policy. And in much of the world, not all of it, and particularly not in Latin America, much of that policy is the promotion of neo Liberalism, framed as the knowledge economy, world university rankings, MOOCs, the growth of international students as a major component of a country's export strategy. And when I want to find out something on global higher ed, I go to the work of Simon Marginson or Susan Robertson or Rajani Naidu or Peter Scott, who's going to be talking here tomorrow, I think. And much of these policies are financed by venture capital that was invented in American universities or government grants or student debt. And also new forms of marketization and financialization. And whenever I want to know about what's happening in terms of financialization in universities, I go to the work of Andrew Magetican. And universities and academics have been involved in developing economic theories to support these activities. Most recently, neoclassical economics, also known as the Chicago School, which forms the basis of neoliberalism and was first trialed, as you know, in Chile in the 1980s, but also elsewhere around Europe, in particular in the UK, and is being applied now to English universities. 
You know that Naomi Klein wrote an important work on, uh, on these policies of the experimentation of neoliberalism, which she called shock doctrine. So much so that there's a very strong relationship between universities and the development of nations and policy and the connection to what is becoming and has been an increasingly globalized world. All of this story is well known, the rise of neoliberalism. And I'm sure we'll hear much of that this week and today. But I'm not going to repeat this well-worn narrative in my talk. What I want to do is to present to you ways in which students and academics and activists are attempting to create an alternative world of higher education based on democracy, social justice, equality, and in which humanity is the project rather than the resource. If we can put ourselves into the context of what's happening in the UK, in the UK, in terms of higher education policy, commentators have described what we are experiencing is a right-wing political coup. Andrew McGettigan calls it that. Seamus Milne in The Guardian calls it that which is based on the, on the politics of austerity and the imposition of poverty that nobody voted for, was not part of an election manifesto. Indeed, it was the opposite of one party's election manifesto and has not been subject to any public or parliamentary debate enforced by an increasingly militarized police force against student protest. And in terms of HE, students are paying £9,000 fees, recast as student as consumer, and public money for teaching the arts, humanities, and the social sciences has been completely withdrawn, opening up to private providers with no research or academic credentials, and a range of financial instruments, as Andrew McGettigan uh, writes, nobody fully understands. And many people feel, many academics and universities feel that all of this undermines the public social mission of higher education. Okay, so that's the, that's the political context that we're working in. So now I'm going to tell you about student as producer and how it connects to all of that. Student as producer is an act of resistance against student as consumer. Student as producer is the organizing principle for all teaching and learning at the University of Lincoln. We've been working on the project since 2007, and Students Producer was adopted as the university's strategy, teaching and learning strategy, in 2010. After a period of working with academics and students and professional and support services, so there's a great deal of ownership for the project, although not everybody agrees with it. Students producer says that undergraduates are regarded as part of the academic project of the university. That is to say, undergraduate students are part of the production and creation of critical, practical knowledge and meaning. And we do this through reconnecting teaching and research at the undergraduate level, saturating the curriculum with research and research-like activity. It's not the only form of teaching that takes place. We still have lectures and seminars. But it is our default position. 
And in the literature, this form of teaching is often referred to as research-engaged teaching. Let me tell you what student producers not. It's not student-led teaching. It's not student-centered teaching. It's a collaboration between academics and, project, uh, and, uh, and students. It works on three levels at least. One, the classroom, two, the institution, and three, uh, the political, um, it's a political project, reinventing the public university. And I'm going to work through, through these three levels now. So in the classroom, students producer in the classroom. We're currently doing an audit of what's taking place across the university in terms of student as producer-like teaching um, across the university. Um, and one could say that it's a very messy reality. Some departments are doing it more than others. Some say they're already doing it, and some do everything to try and, and avoid it. Um, I'm going to just draw out three quick reports on computer science, life sciences, um, and law. Um, in the life sciences, um, sorry, in computer sciences, the, the, the students and the head of department report that it's a driving influence uh, in all pedagogy. That the curriculum is linked to colleagues' research and research centers. And students are involved in working in real research projects, including writing publications for research. In the Department of Life Sciences, students are introduced to their academics research at a very early point. They write research papers, they speak at conferences, they apply for research monies. The head of department writes, there's a wonderful buzz about research in the undergraduate population, and many students have told me they believe this would, o would have only happened here at Lincoln, where we are so open to undergraduate involvement. The head of law says that his students prefer students producer-like activities to be outside the curriculum, extracurriculum activities, so they can put them on their CVs. Um, we're currently interviewing students about what they think. And what they're saying is that they came to Lincoln, not all of them, but some of them, they're coming to Lincoln because they heard about students producer, they like what they get in terms of research, and they say they want more of it. In fact, they say they don't get enough of it. And let me just show you now an example of a, uh, a journal for undergraduate research. This is a reinvention journal. But this is a journal that I was involved in setting up in 2006 when I was at Warwick, uh, working with colleagues and students. And I remember we were rather nervous about it. It's an interdisciplinary journal. And we thought, would it work or not? It's now an international journal featuring students' work. It's twinned with the University of Monash. Students not only write for these publications, they manage and edit and train and support other students. And as you might know, there's many, many journals now appearing where undergraduate work is being published of a high quality. There's also conferences around the world. In University of Nottingham next year, there's the British Conference for Undergraduate Research. I think this will be its third or fourth year. There's about 300 undergraduate students like you coming 
new researchers coming and, and presenting their work. There's similarly conferences in the US where they've been on the go for 30 years, and recently Australia has launched two new conferences. So, that, so the, this is becoming a very big and important issue in, um, in higher education. Okay, so that's, that's a very brief report on work in the classroom. There's much more that could be said about that. I now want to move to the next level of students producer, which is the institutional level. And for me, this is the key level. Because although the students say they wouldn't have been doing research at, the, at, at any other university, actually they probably would have been. There are many examples of undergraduate research in all universities in the UK and elsewhere. But I think the important thing of students producer is that we've institutionalized it, that principle, across a whole, a whole university. It's, it, 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 is our, it is, as I said, our default position for all teaching and learning. And the way in which we've made this work is by creating a number of infrastructural platforms. Sounds a bit technicist, but, but there you are. The first one is by using the QAA protocols. We've used the QAA protocols in what I think is a creative and imaginative and, and quite a radical way, and we're encouraged to do so by the QAA. So, so we use the bureaucracy as a moral and ethical framework for our decision-making against, I write, against the amoral networked enterprise university. So every time a new program comes up for validation, every time an external examiner looks at our programs, every time an academic writes an annual monitoring report, any time we do any quality work at all, we ask the question about students producer. How much research is in the curriculum from the get-go, from the minute they walk in the door? How much are students involved in the design and delivery of their programs, actually delivering teaching? To what extent is the architecture of the classroom designed to encourage engagement and student and academic intellectual intimacy and sensuality are words that people use in this regard. And how is your program involved in creating the future? Students see themselves as the subjects rather than the objects of history. Not just the world of work or employment, that's important, but how about other things too? The QAA just left us in April, of, or they wrote their report in April of last year. We were audited. I don't know if you know, but universities are audited by the Quality Assurance Agency. They come in and do a check on all of your work every five or six years. And Lincoln got the highest commendation for its teaching and learning, um, which, is, which is rare indeed. Um, another infrastructural platform is student engagement. I'm sure you'll have this in your own university. Students are involved more and more in quality processes, in appointing and interviewing academics, of course, being in, a, in committees, maybe chairing and having student-only committees. Um, what we're doing at Lincoln, I chair three committees, and one committee, the Student Experience Committee, is we're redesigning as a workshop. So students not just sitting in the room waiting to, for their agenda item, but the whole, the whole event is organized to make it more including and engaging. Uh, 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 and this is coming out of research that we have been doing in Lincoln. So it's not, just, it's not just a good idea. My own view, and I'll say more about this later, is if, the, is if we really are going to get students involved as equal decision makers, 
then we need to radically reinvent the formal structural management process of the university, and that includes academics as decision makers. And I'll be saying more about that later when I tell you about the Social Science Center Lincoln, which is a cooperative model of higher education. We also use students producer uh, strategy for the design of all our new classrooms, our teaching and learning um, areas. Um, so how, how would students producer be used to redesign a classroom? Let me give you one example. When I was at Lincoln, we redesigned a classroom. We stripped out all the tables and chairs. We heated and rubberized the floor. We took out all the technology other than the wireless. We hung works of art around the wall. We had Cabousier's chair. Um, we took out the PowerPoint out of the classroom, if you know what I mean by that. Not simply the PowerPoint, but we took the point of power out of the space. That is to say, the teacher's position as all-powerful in the classroom. So in that sense, the class was democratized. People did not know how to behave in the classroom, teachers or students. It was very controversial. Some people loved it and some people hated it. It's still there. But that's the point, to challenge people not just in their heads, but, but how they think about their very situatedness in a place. Um, the, um, the education correspondent in The Independent said we'd, we'd um, smashed the mold of, of teaching and learning. That was a bit hyperbole, but, but we didn't mind it. And my good colleague at Warwick, Kat Lambert, has written a fantastic article on the classroom called Psycho, Psycho Classrooms. Um, which you can get online. We're also redesigning, we're using our technology and we're just beginning to, to do that, of course, modern technology and, and digital tools provide a great framework for, for encouraging participation between academics and students in the production of knowledge. Teacher education at Lincoln is a very important infrastructural framework all academics and those involved in teaching at Lincoln are required to have a teaching qualification or CPDHEA fellowship, and we will help them to get that. And in that process, we're able to talk about teaching and learning and students producer in a critical, in a critical and reflexive way. Okay, so that's at the institutional level. So we've worked hard to institutionalize the principle over a long period of time using very precise administrative and bureaucratic and architectural and technical instruments. I'm now going to talk about the third strand in the student's producer project, and that's um, student's producer as a political project um, um, to reinvent the university as a free public institution. Student's producer is not compulsory. Academics do not have to do it. How could we make it compulsory? We're a university. Uh, but we do challenge and provoke academics to, uh, to redesign their, their teaching and learning in a particular way. And what we are trying to do is to set up a different framework for debate outside of the usual managerialist language and discourses that we are so overwhelmed by. And, and the debate is framed when we're able to, to have it about the meaning and purpose of higher education about the idea of the university, which includes teaching ourselves the radical history of higher education. So we as academics need to teach ourselves about our own radical history in order for us to be able to know what kind of university we'd like our universities to be. 
we begin with a negative critique of the current model of higher education. Teaching and research work against each other. They are dysfunctional. These are the core activities of a university. These are the center of our academic life, and yet we all know they work against each other and have a negative impact on student life and academic life. So is it possible to reinvent that relationship between teaching and research in such a way to make it a much more productive and progressive project for, uh, for higher education? Now, it's not just me who says this, but of course there was a famous, famous um, commission in the US in the 1990s, the Boyer Commission, reinventing undergraduate education. And this is where we get the title for our journal, the Reinvention Journal. And this is Boyer's point. Boyer's point is that, as I said, research and teaching work against each other. Can we reinvent that relationship to create a different sort of university, a different sort of university with, with students and academics working collaboratively together? There's much more that can be said about that. Point number two about teaching ourselves about the radical history of higher education. We look at the radical history of the university. Everybody has their own history of the university, okay? This is mine. I know that, but this is mine, and you will have your own. This is where I begin. I begin in the University of Berlin in 1815. This is Humboldt's university. This university is a political project. It's something we're not allowed to say in universities. This university, Humboldt University, the first modern European university, was a political project to create, it was, it was based, he was a constitutional liberal lawyer, to create a liberal humanist university, new citizens for the new emerging German nation state, bringing research and teaching together, abolishing lectures, academics working with students against the dogmatic medieval university, against students being taught the book. The new university, the point of the new university, and the point of our university, is not to teach the book, but it's to write the book. New knowledge at the level of society. The point of the university is to create new knowledge at the level of society, for society. And in doing so, they hoped to resolve the contradiction between our same problem, vocationalism and scientism. This was how you would resolve the contradiction, by creating new knowledge at the level of society. So our project, we argue, can we ground this idealistic philosophy and bring it down to earth in a real form? That liberal humanist project, as we now know, failed. It was a complete disaster, and we have the history of the 20th century to tell us that. The next place we go, 1968, of course. Students, as, as Kristen Ross has written, the historian, students as revealers of the general crisis in Paris and all over the world particularly demystifying how knowledge is produced. Research is something that anyone can do. And creating new pedagogies involving student research. And what's so fascinating is that what were new radical pedagogies in 1970 in England, students doing independent research that came to the UK as left-wing pedagogies are now mainstreamed in higher education as third-year dissertations. The next, the next port of call is Occupy, the Occupy movement and the student movement. What can we, as academics and students, learn from Occupy and post-Occupy? For example, Tent City University in London, where I was invited to give a talk and rather patronizingly said, how can we invent new forms of higher education? And they said to me, we already are. 
intensity university. We already are. And the new forms of higher education in the UK that have come out of that, the ragged university in Edinburgh and Manchester, the People's Political Economy, PPE, ran by students at Oxford University. So, that, so there is much that is going on. So, so the point is, what can we learn as academics and new teachers, new researchers, people coming into the profession for the first time, what can we learn from our students? How can we use our students? How can we redesign our teaching to make it a more productive activity for you uh, 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 and, uh, and for them? Um, and the last point about this, the university as a, as a political project, I just want to talk about the slogan, student as producer. So, uh, it's a very important uh, student as producer. Okay, student as producer. Where does the title come from? The title is, uh, it's, well, it's designed as a provocation. And it's ripped off from Walter Benjamin's author as producer, written in the 1930s. Uh, Walter Benjamin was a, a very peculiar kind of Marxist. That's, just, that's not just my opinion of him. That's what a lot of people said about him. Marxist, messianic, very important critical thinker, writing in the 1930s. And in, he was asked to give a lecture to the Society of Anti-Fascists in Paris. We're not sure if he ever delivered the lecture. We probably think he didn't, but the lecture was written. And in the lecture, he asked the question, how do radical intellectuals act in a moment of crisis? We might see our own time as a moment of crisis. Not the same, but crisis nonetheless. How do radical intellectuals act? And he argued, following the work of Bertolt Brecht and the Russian constructivists, we help students to see themselves as subjects rather than objects of history. Not the audience, but performers. Not the, not the readers, but the writers. And not the students, but the teachers. And in, a, and in that way, also to, re, to revolutionize the process of production. And in, in our case at Lincoln and with other universities, the way in which we're attempting to redesign the process of production is through re-engineering reverse and teaching. So student's producer is based on a 20th century avant-garde Marxist. And in a context in which we are overwhelmed by managerial language and discourse, that seems to me like something of a triumph. So where are we now in terms of student as producer? So my final comments on student as producer before going on to, to, to tell you about the cooperative. Student as producer, we've been going as a strategy and a policy for three years. We feel that the strategy is fully embedded across the university in some areas more than others, but it's still very much a work in progress and we're all the time seeking to get more and more student involvement and engagement. Um, one of the interesting things about it is the way it's been taken on elsewhere in the world. So, for example, at Vanderbilt University in the US, um, this isn't the best website for it, but um, in, for Vanderbilt in the US, they've um, adopted students producer also um, as their as their organizing principle. And at Warwick, of course, where Students Producer really originated in its first form, but other universities in the UK have taken it on in one form or another, as um, Nottingham Trent, Hartford, Liverpool, um, 
in Australia. We work closely with Macquarie University and the HEA, the Higher Education Academy. You might know their program, Student as Partners. That whole idea of engaging students as partners is very much informed by, um, by student as producer. The problem for us now, of course, is how to avoid becoming just a mainstream managerialist initiative. Okay, so that's student's producer. Oh, and let me say, although we've had much success in those two areas, I would say we had failed almost completely as developing the University of Lincoln uh, uh, as a radical alternative to the neoliberal um, university. So what we have done in response to that is to move outside the university and to establish a free cooperative hire, a free cooperative university. Let me say the Social Science Center is a free cooperative hire. Um, it's a free, it's a, it's a further radicalizing of, of student as producer. It's outside the university, although people who work there are academics, students are there, academics from other universities. Um, although it has no formal link with the University of Lincoln. It's important to say that. It has no formal link with the University of Lincoln. So what is it? Well, you can read more about it on the website, um, but it is what it says on the tin. It's free, free in terms of no charge to students, although uh, people are able to afford it. We do ask for small contributions. Nobody gets any wages from the co-op. Um, it's run by students and teachers. We call each other scholars to try and dissolve the distinction between teacher and student in that Paolo Freirean way. We do say that students can leave the co-op with an award at the level of a higher education degree. But it's not a higher education degree. It's awarded by the academics and the students and our external associate academic colleagues who act as external examiners in the same way as academics act for, for universities. But it's not validated by the QAA or HEFKE. We use the, the local facilities and public facilities in the, in the city of Lincoln. Um, so we don't have a premises as such. We have 20 core hardcore members and we have about 120 mailing on the mailing list um, around the world. Um, and we connect with all those other programs I was telling you about uh, in, in England uh, and around the world, like um, people's political economy and so on. And the plans are currently taking place to create a national cooperative university. Now, we're not sure what it's going to look like, but we've had a couple of meetings, a big crowd of us in Manchester, organized around the cooperative college. As you know, the cooperative movement's having a bit of a hard time at the moment following the near collapse and reinvention of the co-op bank, so that's knocked us off our stride a bit. But nevertheless, um, it, it's a real project to create a university, and this would be a, probably more of a regular university, but where students and academics run it together, equal partners. And we're much, again, inspired by the radical history of the cooperative movement. As you know, in the 19th century, this was seen as a radical workers' alternative to the capitalist firm, based on democratic decision-making. 
And, and if cooperatives were seen, were seen not as the revolution, they were certainly seen as a move on the way towards it. Since the radical co-op movement, its purpose has been severely undermined to the extent that it now exists pretty much as a consumerist politics, which is based on the concept of ethical consumerism rather than radical revolutionary politics. So we want to reinvent that radical revolutionary politics at the heart of an English university. Now, that's, that's, that's the co-op. In the last part of my talk, and I think I've got about 10 minutes left, I want to, now if I can do this, I want to use, uh, I want to use Twitter to, to show you how Twitter, how I think it can be used as an interesting real-time research tool and tell you about my most recent work that I'm still very much in the process of, working with a colleague uh, who will be here next, this week actually, Elizabeth Simberger, uh, who works in Chile at the University of Diego Portales. And I was there a month ago working with her, beginning the project looking for Allende. And for those of you who know Twitter, <coughs> and as we have shown today, you can use a, um, a hashtag to link up the topic of what you are working on so people can connect with it even though they might not be following you. I'm going to go through this a bit more later, but just, just, just to show you what I'm doing here on Twitter is that I'm writing a real-time account of my time in Chile involved with the student movement and the, um, and the uh, and academics. And I'm going to show you some pictures in a minute. Um, the, the methodology, because I know we're research students, we're very interested in methodology, and this methodology has been described by Professor Les Back and Nirmal Puwa at the University of Goldsmith as live sociology. I know we're not all in this room social scientists, and believe me, in my role as director of the graduate school, I'm very used to talking to new researchers who aren't social scientists. And I know how much we have in common, and indeed that's a point about the way we work at Lincoln, how much we share. But all of us might like to think how we might use this facility in our own research. Um, Les Back and Poo, Nirmal Puma talk about live sociology. You might think of live chemistry or live physics or something. Um, how to use digital culture to develop new methodological devices. And they say, and I agree with them, in ways that are politically engaged and need to be. Um, he also talks about mobile and sensuous being alive. So there's that word that he uses. And to enact reality rather than simply reflect it and to create knowing forms of sociological representation. So, so just to run quickly through, through what I was doing in Chile, um, you might know that, um, as I said before, Chile was the first country to experiment with neoliberal policies, poverty and austerity, imposed by a violent and brutal military dictatorship following on the coup in 1973 when the deposed, elected Marxist president uh, committed suicide. The coup, as we know, was led by General Pinochet and ended in 1989. 
Well, what's so interesting is in the recent period, since 2006, there's been mass protests by school children, and now, having left school, the protests began in 2006, having left school, these school children are now in universities and carrying on the protests with what they learned through the defeat of that school movement for a free public higher education. And what is so important in terms of, of this movement, and I think for our own situation, is the student protest has found a language to link protests of health, welfare, housing, and employment. And they've created a framework and a language to think about these things in a society that's been highly privatized for 30, 30 more years, and we are told they have the support of 80% of, of the population. So there's a move against the privatization. It's not a simple story by any means, but there is a move against. When I was there, it was just before the presidential elections in November in two, of 2013, and student leaders were elected to parliament, Giorgio Jackson for the Democratic Revolutionary Party, Camilla Vallejo for the Communist Party, now forming an alliance with Michel Bachelet, who was likely to be elected president as the center-left candidate, Gabriel Boric, the autonomous Marxist candidate, Carola Cariola, um, again, she was a member of the Communist Party and is now part of an alliance with the, um, with the, uh, with the likely new government. And a key issue for this, for this protest and this movement is not, is not simply um, how to create a new form of public education, but to rewrite a whole new constitution. Anyway, it's a, big, it's a very big issue. Although, as you might expect, these elections um, and the transition from student leaders to members of parliament has been very controversial in student politics in Chile, where the anarchist group is in the ascendancy. So it's all very interesting. I went looking in Chile for the influence of Salvador Allende, looking for Allende, and in particular the influence of Marxist democratic revolution, and in particular the relationship between reform and revolution. And I'm currently writing up this research with my friend and colleague Elizabeth Simberger. But, he, but, but even before I write it up, what is so reassuring for me is that I'm sort of able to show you in a fairly organized way you know, the whole research project when I was there in real time. So I, I suggest that's a powerful tool. And of course, these, um, these tweets are connected to uh, photographs and um, audio. So if you, if you go onto my Twitter site, at Mike Neary, you can, you know, you can run through, you can run through the whole thing. I don't have time to, um, to go through the whole thing this morning. Uh, but, but let me just leave you, as my final comment, with this uh, tweet. This is a nice picture of my colleague uh, and friend, Elizabeth Simberger. Uh, and uh, as I was just about to leave, and, uh, I, I, and the slogan on the wall, I think, is one that would, would do all of us well, which is, uh, listen to your heart, shout, revolution. Thank you.